We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. If you've been tracking with us, um, I'll read script and then we'll dismiss the kids in a moment. Um, We are in the gospel according to John, the invisible made visible. And uh, we are in chapter 7 is where we finished last week. And we're going to keep walking through that gospel until we complete it sometime in the year of 2045. Um, but today what we're going to do in celebration of Palm Sunday is we're going to jump forward to John chapter 12. Um, you're going to see some themes, some really cool things in there as we've been studying together the gospel uh, according to John that John is writing about in John 12. So if you have a Bible, please turn with you, me to John 12. There are Bibles in the back. We're reading John 12. Um, we're going to read verses, a couple more verses than I had thought. Um, 9 through 24 is our scripture reading. Um, I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version of of the Bible. Um, If you're wondering, maybe one of you are. Um, It's ESV. Chapter 12, the Gospel according to John. And let's pick up in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he has risen from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him then, uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, when he was raised from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Okay, children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. Glad I got sunglasses on, see you. Is it bright in here? He's so cute. Okay, so that's where we're at, John 12. We will uh, celebrate Palm Sunday, and uh, we'll pick up, of course, next week is Easter. It's going to be four baptisms here on Easter mornings. It's a glorious time to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, not only preaching in the Word, but through the picture of what baptism represents. There's a large tank under here, if you're new. Um, stairs on both sides, a full tank. We'll get that up to about 95 degrees, nice and warm. And we're going to have four baptisms, so I want to encourage you to come out this week. But not only this week, we pick up in John 12 this triumphant entry of the first Palm Sunday as we begin this week really picking up where Jesus was. I want to encourage you, as, as uh, uh, Pastor Chris mentioned to you, there's going to be, you know, each day we're going to be in the scriptures, we're going to be studying together. Go to our website, download the devotional guide. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we'll gather here for lamenting service. Thursday, Monday, Thursday. Good Friday right here, 7.30. All the times are on there. We want to encourage you to be part of this week with us. As we celebrate together, we walk where Jesus walked. Beginning on today, this triumphal entry of Jesus, where he comes into Jerusalem and there's this cheering crowd. I mean, just the, the one who claims to be the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel has come. The one that they thought would make all the wrong things right. And dispense justice to the Roman authorities. But what we'll see in our scripture as we go through this, um, this whole week, is that this applause, this public approval and praise for Jesus, turns into a mob calling for his crucifixion. Crucify him, they're going to yell. What makes this narrative for me 
hopefully for you too. But what makes this narrative as we study this passage this week so incredibly beautiful, so unbelievably marvelous, is that Jesus, as he's entering Jerusalem, as this acclamation and this, this praise and worship of him is going on, he knows that the praise is going to be turned to hatred. He knows that this giant crowd that came out to meet him will scatter, leaving him all alone, almost naked, hanging on a cross on Golgotha. And what's so amazing, and even his closest friends, his companions will abandon him. What's so amazing for me is that he went anyway. Let that grip you, man. Let that never leave your heart. That the Lord Jesus Christ in his sovereignty and his omniscience knew exactly what was taking place. And in love. In love for his father's will, ultimately for his father's glory, But for love for you and for me, his heart, his mind, the scripture says, he was bent, he was set to go to Jerusalem. He would give his life as a ransom for many. We're a week away. It's Palm Sunday. We're going to look at this text through five different titles or movements. You're thinking five will be here until next Thursday. No. <laughs> we're going to go through them quickly, some more even quickly than others, but we're going to end up, because I, as I sat back and just studied the scripture and prayed over the scripture, there's a lot going on. We see this reaction of this crowd as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the, the recognition of the Lord as he sits on a donkey's colt, this recollection of his disciples that we've seen in John before. I don't, we don't get it, but we will. And then, of course, the rejection of the Pharisees. And rather than be so hard on them, maybe we'll see some things in our own life, in our own hearts. And then end, I think, the text, that's why we went all the way to 24, with the reaction of the Greeks. John is showing us something in this text. John is telling us something in this narrative that he wants us to see, and that's where we're in. So, number one, the reaction of the crowd. In your Bibles, chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, see that? Chapter 12, verse 12. The next day. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, this, this, this triumphal entry, this, this entrance into Jerusalem on this first Palm Sunday, is, which is rare, written in all four gospel accounts. You can read it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. They're all in there, okay? And it's relatively few, but each one has this account. When it says the next day... It means that the Passion Week began the day after Jesus had spent time, if you can read all of chapter 12, you don't have to write now, in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Chapter 12, verse 1. You know, as you think about that, think about that for a moment. Jesus is spending time relaxing. They had had thrown, I don't know if it was a party, but it it was a dinner gathering. In those days, the town, maybe some people from the town came out. According to Mark, it's, it was that Simon the leper. Jesus may have healed this man. And, and there's Jesus is there. He's two miles from Jerusalem. And he's spending time with his friends. Don't, don't pass that over. It's the quiet before the storm. It is Jesus in his full humanity spending time with people he loved, who loved him. They shared meals together. I'd love to have been there. You know, we think sometimes that Jesus is okay. Everybody sit down. Let's open our Bibles together. I'm sure he did that, but I'm sure it was a fun, laughter, time of fellowship with his friends. Mary, it says, took out some expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus' head. And in devotion and humility, she, she wipes his feet with this perfume. And only Jesus really understands the full impact of her affection toward him. Judas, of course, speaks up right away. Greedy, selfish question, verse 5, chapter 12, verse 5. Why weren't this perfume, this ointment sold and money given to the poor? Like he really cared about the poor. Jesus said to him, leave her alone. Now, I don't know if he said it like that, but I hope he did. You know, I got this. Leave her alone. Mine yours. All right, that's a little city, but you know what I mean. 
Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have. Verse 8. But you will not always have me. Then in verse 9 it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. I want you to see that. He's in Bethany. He's two to three miles outside of Jerusalem. And the Jews heard he was there, and they came to Bethany. Not only on account of him, that's Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10, the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, the resurrection of Lazarus, because of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You got to feel bad for Lazarus. Being sick and slowly watching your life ebb away has got to be stressful. Some of you have seen loved ones. It's hard. It's difficult. It's stressful. He dies. He's in the tomb four days. Jesus calls him back to life. He's going to die again, unlike Jesus' resurrection. Everyone in in the Bible who comes back to life from the dead dies again. And then he finds out people are trying to kill him again. The guy can't win. It's like, you should have just left me where I was, Lord Jesus. I was happy in heaven, you know? Um, and now you wake up and there are people trying to kill me and I'm running and hiding. You've got to feel sorry for the brother, right? And now if you notice, the text tells us that it was the Passover season. Now, we know, we've seen this before, the different festivals. This was one of three mandatory feasts that all the able-bodied Jews were to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. So this Sunday morning, as the Passover feast is preparing at the following, it happens on Friday, um, this, this, I want you to see Jerusalem jam-packed. Some people say millions of people, possibly a million, one, two million in Jerusalem. Jerusalem not very big. And what would happen in that day is the pilgrims or the Passover pilgrims would come to the city and outside the city, Jericho, Bethany, you see all these little towns outside the city and the meadows coming into Jerusalem would be jam-packed with tents everywhere. Every inch of the ground was covered. You're talking a million, two million people flocking to Jerusalem. They didn't have a bunch of Hotel 8s there, you know what I mean, to pack everybody. So they would come and it would be tents and the place is absolutely overran with people. Tents everywhere. And this crowd that had gathered on the road going into Jerusalem, according to all the other gospel accounts, was there to meet him that came from Bethany. So he leaves Bethany the next day, and he heads towards Jerusalem two or three miles from there. And what happens is, I want you to see this, is there's a crowd probably came down from Galilee as well. We, we looked at the Galilean ministry we talked about last time. So the group of people from Galilee coming to Jerusalem, stop at Bethany. He's got this large crowd. Everybody's coming to see Lazarus. The Pharisees are there. They probably heard in Jerusalem that he was there, and they went out to see him. Got this big crowd two miles outside, and this crowd is walking Jesus into Jerusalem, and people in Jerusalem heard that Jesus is coming, and the whole crowd from Jerusalem is heads out there, and you got these two crowds coming together on the road of Bethpage over the Mount of Olives. Very large crowd. Okay, and I want you to see that. Verse 13, so they, this large crowd of Passover pilgrims, took palm branches or branches of palm trees, and they ran out. They went out to meet Jesus. I want you to see that picture. Now, it's very easy to acquire palm branches around Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho was called the city of palms. Um, There were a lot of palm, date palms in that day, so it would have been easy for the crowd to get palms along the way. We're going to give out palms at the end of the service. And by this time in Jesus' life, in antiquity, during this time, the palms were a symbol of, of welcoming heroes uh, from battle or uh, just unusual responses of rejoicing in Israel. They would wave these palm branches. And in our text, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, they are expecting this, this they had this nationalistic hope uh, that the Messiah was going to come and liberate them. And free them. And now in Jesus he has arrived. And they they bring out palm branches and they're waving. Verse 13b says what they were crying out. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even, catch this, the king of Israel. You remember earlier in John? They tried to grab Jesus and make him king. Now the crowd. And remember what happened. Jesus said, no, it's not my time yet. And he took off. 
went up into the mountain, if you remember. Now they're shouting and there's a crowd saying, even the king of Israel. Now, Hosanna means save us now or save now or salvation now. It comes from what is called the Hillel, uh, Psalm 113 and 118, particularly 118. They would sing this song during these festivals. We're going to see in John 7, too, when we go back to that. They were singing the Hillel. And th- this Hillel that they were singing, they were, they, were, they were shouting. The temple choir would be singing it, and, and the morning sacrifices. It was sung with the hopes that now, during these festivals, the Messiah, the, the messianic hope would appear, and he would save them from their earthly enemies. The people were looking for their Messiah They were looking for their deliverer, which he was. But he was not the deliverer that they wanted. And they were shouting, Hosanna, save us now. Now is your day. Now is your time. King of Israel, here you come. It's not that unlike today. Many people, even today, we have a lot of people with a lot of agendas. And we're happy to welcome Jesus in. We're happy to give him shouts of praise, providing he does what we tell him to do. Furthering our own political, our social, financial agendas, whatever they might be. They're anticipating Christ coming, and they're going to hand him their agenda and anticipate what he is going to do. That's the prosperity gospel. Do as I say. I caught you in a prayer. I said it just the way. And now bring me my own fleshly desires in the full. That's what, that's, you're the Messiah. Come save us now. And, and, and unfortunately, we like to say, boy, they're a bunch of fickle people, aren't they? They're shouting this, oh, this is great, and then they want to kill them. <laughs> but let's be honest. How many people, when you say, no, it's not your agenda, it's his agenda, it's not what you can get from him and you see Jesus as useful, but when you see Jesus as beautiful, And when he is all that you need, when he alone is enough, they want nothing to do with him. The reaction of the crowd. We're confronted. We're confronted. Do we bring him our agenda and say, do this for us? And when he doesn't come through, we want nothing to do with him? Or do we come and say, I lay down my agenda. You're the king of kings. You're the king of glory. We have the reaction of the crowd. Look, look at the recognition of the Lord. Verse 14. And Jesus, verse 14, found a young donkey and sat on it. Now, if you read the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it becomes very, very clear, if you read them, that Jesus himself arranged the entire thing. John says he was a young donkey. Mark and Luke very importantly say that he was a, 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 a colt, a donkey that no one has ever sat on. No one has ever ridden him. And according to the other accounts, uh, Jesus was going to Jerusalem. He took two of his disciples. He said, go on to the village ahead of me. There you will find a donkey's colt. Untie it and bring it to me. And when someone says, why are you stealing my animal? Tell him the Lord has need of it. And of course, because Jesus is God, that's exactly what happened, right? Now, if you notice in our text, we're not sure exactly what time this whole arrival, this shouting, this praise, and that Jesus got on top of this, this donkey for a ride, okay? Perhaps Jesus set his preparations to action. Uh, he begins his journey on foot. The crowd is, is, is on every side. They, they meet him, and they're shouting. All of a sudden, the disciples show up with this colt. But whatever the reason is, or whatever the exact time, I should say, that took place, John reports, look at the text, that the ride on the donkey came immediately after the acclamation of the crowd. It could be the reason to to restrain or to somehow quell some of the emotional frenzy about this, this whole nationalistic hope and expectations of Jesus. But this ride, I want you to know, this ride into the village on a donkey was, was very different than what anybody expected. I, I can only imagine the conversation Jesus had with his disciples that he wanted to be transported into Jerusalem on this young colt. Because kings in that day didn't ride donkeys into cities. 
they rode war horses. Kings would ride a war horse into the cities in which they conquered, and they rode back with, this, with the war horses to show forth the king of their great military win. And I can only imagine that Jesus said, okay, guys, listen, the large crowd is I want you to do. I want, I want you to go into the city uh, ahead of me, and I want you to, to I'm not going to go in just on foot. I'm going to ride in. I can only imagine they said, sweet, war horses will get them. Swords, we're ready. We're going into Jerusalem. Get those Romans. You're claiming your kingship. You're the king of David. You're the son of David. You're the king of Israel. You're the deliverer. Let's go. It's been about time. It's been like three years. We're waiting. And she's like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going that way. No, 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 no. I want you to go get this little baby donkey. And I'm going to sit on that and walk in. And I can only see the look on their face like, you, you need an image consultant, Lord. We'll do that for you. <laughs> like, you're not getting anywhere on a donkey. We need war horses. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Guys, go and do as I say. And they do. And, and his coming on this donkey was no doubt surprising for all those who expected this Messiah to take his rightful place. Hosanna, king of Israel. In fact, Matthew adds that they were shouting, Hosanna, son of David, King David. So in those days, the Roman generals, they would, they, would, they would not only march in with war horses, they would come into the city. Like if they had conquered a city, they would conquer the city, capture the, the, the rebels and that city. And then they would go from that city into their city, which they were dispatched from. And they would come into the Colosseum on these war horses with chariots and chained. And these, these people chained up that were their prisoner. It was, they would throw them to wild beasts. And it, was, it was a glorious entrance. And Jesus like, no, I'm going to come on a donkey with peace gentle, riding on a donkey's colt. And what Jesus is telling the world, I want you to see this in the recollection of Christ, is that he is the king. He claims to be the king here. He, he says in verse 14 and 15, just that it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is a prophecy of Zechariah. And actually, he adds some from Isaiah. And what Jesus is saying is, I am that king. And, and I know we jumped ahead from 7 to 12 in John, but up to this point, Jesus had been pretty like, yes, I'm that guy, but I, I'm going to stay out here in the woods. I'm going to stay out here in the mountains. I'm going to go into the cities. Don't tell nobody. Now, all of a sudden, it's the triumphal entry. This is, this is Palm Sunday, and Jesus is like, okay, this is who I am. I am the fulfillment of this prophet. I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. No, I'm not the king the world wants, but I am the king of Israel. And Jesus brings together this, this majesty and this meekness, this, this power and yet this peace, this weakness and yet this ultimate strength. And by this deliberate public demonstration, Jesus provoked the Jewish leaders of that day. He knew his time was come. In his sovereignty, in his authority, he staged the whole thing. For it was this triumphal entry on Sunday that triggered the events to take place the rest of the week so that he would be crucified on the Passover season. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No one takes my life, Jesus said. No one takes my life. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Make no mistake what Jesus was telling this crowd. The recognition of the Lord. Look at the recollection of the disciples. His disciples didn't understand these things. And you, I know you're thinking, why couldn't they? Well, you wouldn't either. Let's be honest. They didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So at this point, their perspective is somewhat foggy. They don't really understand what's going on. They're confused. They're puzzled. I mean, you can only imagine. We want to conquer. You're coming in on a donkey. In John chapter 2, we saw the same thing. The Jews said, what sign do you do that you claim all this authority, Jesus? He says, I'll tell you what. Destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. They're like, get out of here. It took us 46 years. Jesus said, no, and the disciples said, you know, he wasn't talking about the temple, he was talking about his body. And then it says that the disciples didn't understand it until he was raised from the dead. 
Then they remembered what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the word that had been spoken by Jesus. Here it says they figured things out when he was glorified. John chapter 2 says they, th- they figured things out when he was risen. Really the same thing. Jesus' death marks the turning point. It's part of the bigger picture that leads to his, not only his burial, his death, burial, and resurrection, but his exaltation and his glorification. Jesus told his disciples, and we'll get to this in John 14 and 16, when the helper, the paracletus, the the Holy Spirit comes, he will come, and you know what he's going to do? He will teach you all the things and bring to remembrance all the things I've said to you. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into the truth. All truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. As I walk away from this, and I I want you to be encouraged this morning, I want you to be encouraged that the disciples in their current situation were not completely hopeless. They were not in their fogginess, in in their perplexity forever. There was a time in which they knew what Jesus was doing. There was the future, yes, but they came to understand when the transformation had taken place, just what the Spirit said. And some of you may be at that point in your life. You're, you're, you've been here, you've been here a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, and you're not quite sure this whole thing of what Jesus is saying, Jesus is doing, and what Jesus accomplished on that cross 2,000 years ago for you. It's our prayer that God opened your eyes and see the truth of who he is. I mean, the disciples were expecting this earthly kingdom, this earthly king, and then they realized the reality of the importance of the work of Jesus on the cross. You know, shortly before Palm Sunday, Matthew, uh, uh, Mark and Matthew tell us, both their gospel accounts, that James and John, with their mom, you may know this story, James and John, with their mom, decided that they should sit on the left and right of Jesus in his kingdom. Remember that story? Jesus is talking about thrones. He's talking about the 12 tribes who will judge Israel. And James and his brother get their mom and go, hey, man, I think this is great, mom. And, of course, mom's like, oh, you guys would do so good. We'd be so proud of you just sit on the left and right of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. Jesus is talking about the glory of the Father. They're talking about who's going to be so great in the kingdom. Mark 10 says, grant me. His mom and James and John say, grant us that we may sit on your left and on your right. They just didn't get it. It it wasn't that Jesus stopped teaching and said, you guys aren't getting it, you're done. He just kept going. And we encourage you, keep coming. Keep coming. Keep hearing the word of the Lord. Keep seeking the face of Jesus. Because I think a lot of times we don't completely get it. I mean, I hope you're not a Christian here today and say, I got it all. I understand it completely. Right? I mean, do you understand how greatness came through humility? Do you understand how meekness is the way to power and exaltation? For, for years, the rabbis would study this text and say, how is this king coming on a donkey's colt? How is this Messiah coming with brokenness and, and, and peace and, and this meekness? He looks like more like Mr. Rogers than he does the king of glory. But after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended, they realized That if Christ had just come to liberate them from the Romans, what good would that be? What good would it be if Jesus just liberated you from the circumstances you're in, and yet you died in your sin and been separated from him in hell for all eternity? Now, I'm going to get a little bit, step on some toes here. Sorry. No, I'm not. Because I see them wanting something, needing something, the disciples, the Jews, you know, and then we see Jesus saying, no, that's not what you really need. We're in a political war here in America. We're in a political war. We're in the midst of, and this election is very important. I want to encourage every American that has a right to vote to vote. It's your right. It's your responsibility. Go and vote. But what happens when it's over? What happens if you overcome the political oppression? What about your personal oppression? What if your candidate wins? What if they lose? Are you trusting in Jesus who said, I've come to deliver you far more 
than the Romans, the Democrats, the Republicans. I've come to deliver you from sin, from death, from eternal hell. I've come not with political clout. I've come in lowliness. I've come in meekness. I've come to die in your place. I've come to rescue you from you. I came to take your place, to bear your punishment, to deal with your sin, which result is eternal hell without me. I've come to set you free that nothing in this world can take from you. That's Jesus. And, 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 and they came to understand that after the atonement, at one month, when Christ went on the cross and he died for their sin. You see, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, their recollection is our reminder. And that happens in the atonement, that we should never lose sight of the ultimate sacrifice, the eternal purposes of God must take precedence. Our hope must be in him and him alone. The ultimate hope is in Christ and him alone. They came to realize that later on. Number four, the rejection of the Pharisees. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. That is the imperfect tense in the Greek. They continually, constantly, and continually bore witness and testimony about Lazarus, those who were with Lazarus. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Does that sound familiar? Family, I hope you say, yeah, that, that sounds familiar. That sounds familiar to us. Because what you have is one crowd was there and one crowd heard about it. And what John has been saying all along, we've seen it several times, I won't point it out today, is that those who believed in the miracle worker, the sign seeker, Jesus said he does not entrust himself to that spurious belief. Now, God does work miracles. God does work miracles and powers and signs and wonders. But what happens is people get caught up in that and they miss the truth of the gospel. And that's the concern for John. We see it throughout this gospel account. You get caught up in this glamour and you miss the truth of the gospel. You know, they probably thought... He has the power to call Lazarus four days, the Bible says in King James. He stinketh. And out he came. The crowd, I don't know this to be true. I'm just conjecture. But if the crowd was there, or they say both crowd, the ones that saw Lazarus giving testimony and those who heard about it, the ones who saw it, maybe they were, maybe a couple of them watched the rock, you know, move from the tomb. Thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen here? Maybe when Jesus called him out, some of them were standing right next to Jesus. Maybe some people in this crowd was the ones that Jesus said, go untie him, unbind him, take his wraps off of him. And they're like, I don't know. He's back. But as we've seen, this crowd of followers were consistent with what John tells us. They were thrill seekers. It didn't matter or not whether he really rose from the dead, whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. Now, in Luke chapter 16, I want to read a story to you. And then we'll move on to the last point. Luke chapter 16. Here's a story, a parable that Jesus teaches, Luke 16. He says to his disciples, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Fine linen, that's undergarment, purple, expensive garment, Feasting every day as you had pleasure, that's, that's kind of a euphemism for great happiness. He lived and had everything he wanted. He enjoyed ease, and we'll see he was really a man about his own self. Rich man, clothed in purple, fine linen, ate, drank, be merry. And at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, different Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to feed, to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So it doesn't say he ate anything. It just says that was his desire. Right? One had everything, one had nothing. The poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, but he's in Hades, in torment. He lifts up his eyes. Now listen to this. He lifts up his eyes. He, he sees Abraham, uh, that's heaven, paradise, far off, and Lazarus, the poor man, at Abraham's side and he calls out father Abraham have mercy on me 
And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The one who would not show mercy is now asking for mercy, and there's kind of an arrogance in that. Hey, send Lazarus. You know, like I'm rich. I, got, I had a maid where I was. While he's over there, send him to go get something for me. Abraham said, child, remember that you are in your lifetime received good things. And Lazarus, like man of bad, how now he's in comfort here, you're in anguish. And besides all this, there's a great chasm between us in order that you can't come here and we can't go there. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. So now it's not about him. It's not really about the poor man or anybody else. It's about his brothers. For I have five brothers, so that you may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. And Abraham said this. No. They have Moses and the prophets. They have their Bible. They have their Bible. Let them hear that. Let them hear them, really is what it says. They have the scriptures. They have everything that they need in the scripture. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And they said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Those who refuse to see Christ in the scriptures, like these Pharisees, and to heed what God has declared, refuse to be convinced even if somebody comes back from the dead. That's scary. The Pharisees were men of substance. They refused to believe all that the Bible points to and talks about and declares about Jesus, the Son of God. Even as she rise from the dead, whether it's Lazarus or in, in our story, or it is Lazarus, the one who literally rose from the dead, or it's ultimately Jesus who rises from the dead. Here's the deal. Their worldly substance, their worldly substance, their, their fleshly, their pleasures of this life blind them to the poverty of, that they have before God. That's dangerous, man. When you have all that you want, you have the power and the prestige, you're rich in law-keeping, you're rich in power, you're rich in your moral uprightness. I tithe, I give money, I go to church, I help the little lady across the street. When I'm right in myself, we fail to see the spiritual deficiency before God. Even if somebody rose from the dead, no one can tell them nothing. Jesus already said in John 3, light is coming to the world, man, but you listen, you are people who love the darkness because the light comes, it exposes your evil. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, I love this, they said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. They're talking to each other. You see, you're gaining nothing. They're pointing fingers. Look what you're doing, look what you're doing, look what you're doing. It's like, then they say, look, the world has gone after them. I mean, it's an exaggeration. It's not the whole world. John used the world cosmos to talk about people of, of all different uh, ethnicity. They're like, listen, everyone in the whole world is going after him. Everything we're doing, we can't stop them. Their, their exaggeration is seen in their desperation. We want him dead. He's not doing what we told him he should do, and that's go away. So we want him dead. The reaction of the crowd, the recognition of the Lord, the recollection of the disciples, rejection of the Pharisees, and finally, let's look at the reaction of the Greeks. This is so important in this, in this text. That's why I wanted to add this. Look at verse 20. He says, Now, among those who went where? Up to worship at the feast. See the connection with this text. He's still talking about those who worship at the feast. Were some Greeks. Where did they come from? So these came to Philip and Bethsaida in Galilee and asked them, we want to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew's the go-to guy. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, there's a lot of um, conjecture on who these Greeks are, but I, th I think what we're seeing is the heart of God. That's where I want to end, on the heart of God. The Greeks could be the, the, what they call God-fearers. They're, they're non-Jews that embrace Judaism. So they're God-fearers, they're Gentiles, they're non-Jews. Some commentators think they were Jewish, but they were Greek-speaking Jews. I don't think so. Some think that they were what they call the diaspora, which means they are the ones who were, were scattered, and now they have come. They're Hebrew people that have come. I don't think so. 
Some people think they was just straight up proselytes. You know what a proselyte is? Proselyte is someone who's not a Jew who is bought into Judaism completely, 100%. They're brought into the covenant family. But those people have to do everything. The feast, the dietary laws, it was very, very strict, very, very hard, including the men had to circumcise themselves. So you can imagine if church membership was, I'd be alone right now, right? Like, I am not going to King's Chapel, okay? So, I don't think so. I think these Greeks were non-Jews, like Cornelius. Remember, we did the book of Acts together. Cornelius is an Italian cohort. Devout man gave money, gave alms, prayed to God. Luke 17 talks about a, a Saturian man who was Roman, who, who, who loved God's people, built them a synagogue. I think these are Jewish people that are coming to the feast they're not proselytes, they're not Jewish people, but they hear about the Lord. And they're coming to the feasts. They were admiring all the things that were going on, and they wanted to hear from God. In fact, the temple had a place called the Court of the Gentiles where they would go and worship. That's where they were allowed to go. You know, we tend to think, and maybe you don't, maybe some of you do, so I'm gonna straighten it out right now. We tend to think that when Jesus showed up, Okay, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as soon as we turn to the New Testament, at that point, God said, okay, I'm going to love other people today. That somehow now, I used to love only Jewish people, and they were my people. Everyone else can go to hell, and now Jesus comes, and we love all people. That's not right, just in case you didn't know. As far back as Abraham, when God called the entire Jewish people to himself, he did not do it and then say, detach yourself, disconnect yourself from the world. Over and over again, God's people, by grace, were called into a relationship with him and then sent out into the world. The Great Commission did not start in Matthew 28. It way back in Genesis. Okay? Genesis 12, everybody's making a name for themselves. The Tower of Babel, we preach through that. God gives Abraham a name as a gift of grace, and he says to him in Genesis 12, I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, Abraham, all the families of earth shall be blessed. You read about Melchizedek, you read about Jethro, you read about Rahab and Ruth, people who turned in Nazareth for the preaching of Jonah, non-Jews. God is interested in all people at all times. Solomon, in his prayer, when he built the temple, read it in 2 Chronicles, um, I think 2 Chronicles 6, 1 Kings 8. He says, Lord, we're your people. Pour out your glory. Show up in this place. Forgive us of our sins. And when foreigners come, Lord, answer their prayer so that they will know that you are the Lord our God. Isaiah talks about light to the Gentiles. God is interested in all people, all nations, and always has been, even in the choosing of Israel to be light and salt to the world. Well, what's the point? Why is John all of a sudden going, and there were some Greeks? To let you know that salvation is, although from the Jews, Jesus in his humanity was Jewish, in his life, in his perfect life, in his death, is for the whole world. It's for you here today. And what we see at this festival is the word got out, Jesus was there, the Greeks here, and they're like, we want to talk to him, we want to see him, we want to hear from him, we heard that he's here. Their hope and, and their belief is that Jesus loves them, that God loves all people, all nations, all tribes, even the people that don't look like you, smell like you, work like you, act like you. The good news is that when Christ goes out, people come to faith that you would think, really? They said that about me. They some still do. You ever meet those people? Like, oh, yeah, come to church just, just yesterday. Come to church. Oh, man. You know, you're sharing the gospel. You invite them to church. Like, if I come to church, the whole roof will fall down. If I come to church, the place will never be able to stand. And my answer is always, dude, if I walked in and it's still standing, you'll be okay. <laughs> right? Our text, large crowds saw the miracle. Lazarus was dead, he's now alive. We know him, we know his family. Some people heard that he was alive. They know him, they know the family. They witnessed that cold stone that was rolled away. Another crowd came from the cemetery. 
maybe hearing that he was alive. They collide. They're, they're praising and they're welcoming this king who is, who is, they believe, their earthly messianic hope. Then there's the angry leaders who wanted Jesus dead, not only because of his claims, but they were afraid to lose power and prestige in Jerusalem. The Romans would be angry. They can't control their own, and they would be taken away from their power and prestige in the city. And then the Greeks show up. Oh, and then there were some Greeks. They may have been the most honest ones of the bunch. I don't know. But one thing I know, and I want you to point this out, and we're going to end right here. Look what it says. It says, this whole festival, this whole feast, this whole worship, everything's going on. These Greeks show up, and what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? <laughs> Verse 23, the hour has come. Well, no, there, there are people here. Jesus says to them, some people think the Greeks were there when this happened. But instead of saying, what do you guys want? What are you here for? What's going on? You came a long way. Jesus just turns around and says, the hour has come. The hour has come, the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, verse 24, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it'll bring forth much fruit. Jesus at that moment, in the gospel according to John, at that moment, when those Greeks came, when those people came, at that moment was a trigger. John, up to this point, we'll see, we go back, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. The enemies could not put Jesus to death because his hour has not come. His hour just came. And I think there's something there. I think there's something there, that the hour had come when the Greeks came. So that you and I, all, all of us will know that salvation is for you. That salvation is for me. The hour is the hour of his death. The hour is the hour of his glorification, his glorious resurrection, his ascension. That's the hour. He says, we'll see, he says, glorify me with the glory I had with you from the beginning. I've done your work. I've done everything, John 17. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to defeat evil and justice, but not by going to a throne, but going to a cross for all people. Thrones are places of power. Jesus, the true king, is being crucified on a cross, which is the apex of powerlessness and helplessness. Yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem. Yeah, that's where this week has taken me, but not to gain ultimate power, but to give away ultimate power. I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule. I'm going to serve. I'm not going to gain power by force. I'm giving up my power by laying down my life. That is how I'm going to conquer evil, defeat evil, and put everything right. Jesus Christ did not come to conquer by force as earthly kings on their way will do. He conquers us by his love, by his grace, by his mercy, by his own sacrifice on the cross. He's not gathering a kingdom of armies today, but a kingdom of people who are lowly, who are servants, who know Jesus as the one true king. Not political, not military. Alfred Edersheim, he did a big study on Jesus. He said this, He came not, Jesus, as expected, according to the desires of Israel, not in the proud triumph of war conquest, but the meek rule of peace. Jesus still comes to us today in peace. Someday, the scripture says, he will come not on a donkey, but in a war horse. Someday, a white horse rider will come, the Messiah, with justice and judge and make war. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, strike down the nations. But today, he comes in peace. What happens when you jump on an animal, a donkey, a colt that has never been ridden or touched by a human being? They kick. They're afraid. You have to break them. You've got to teach them. You've got to train them. Jesus takes this donkey, never been ridden on, in a massive crowd, and walks. Family, that's a picture of Jesus Christ in your life. No matter what turmoil may be going on, he is the Prince of Peace. And we have peace with God, even though turmoil's around us. He's not there to break us. He's not there to coerce us. He's there to love us, to conquer us, but for our good and for his glory. At that point, we're not afraid of death, 
failure, criticism, even fear of sickness, of anything else, when the gospel transform us. When Jesus comes into your life, he says, I want absolute authority and obedience and submission. And we hear those words and we freak out. But just like Becky Piper wrote, Jesus is the only one that can control you without destroying you. You can be trolled, we are controlled by things, but when God comes in and comes into your life, he makes something out of you. He heals you. He doesn't break you. His ruling power comes into our lives, and he makes us blossom for the people we are meant to be. But we see the turmoil in our lives, and we're afraid. Let me end with this illustration as the band comes up. Everybody give me one minute. The band come on up. A group of teenagers, now listen to me. A group of teenagers were at a youth group, went on a camping trip near a lake. One of the teenagers who couldn't swim fell into the water. It was obviously that he couldn't swim. He's kicking and screaming and, and, and flailing his arms, thrashing about. One of the adult chaperones was a strong sim- swimmer, but he just stood there and he watched this teenager kick and, and, and flag his arms, and he just watched Soon as the man went down, the older gentleman, soon as the young teen went down, the other man jumped in and swam and pulled him to safety and rescued him. And the, and the rescuers said, to the, the man said to the rescuers, why were you so slow to act? Everybody else like saying, you knew, we knew you were a great swimmer. Why don't you just jump in? He said, if I had jumped in immediately to save his thrashing about, it would have prevented me from saving him. Only by waiting until he was too exhausted to try to save himself could I save him. Are you, are you kicking and screaming and, 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 and waving? Or will you rest in the work of Jesus, who knew that you would rebel, who knew that you were a sinner, who knew that you would turn your back on him and shout one minute praises and say, crucify him the next. And he loves you anyway. He died for you anyway. He died on the cross taking your sin, your shame on himself and then rose from the dead. And offers you peace with the Father. Do you know that? I pray you do. And I pray that as you see this man, all that he has done for you, you will worship him as the one true God, the God-man. I want to encourage you today. See Jesus. Let's walk with him this week together and worship him. Maybe this is your first time. Give your life to Christ. Stop kicking. You can't save yourself. Let Jesus save you. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for this beautiful narrative that you've given us in your holy word. Father, thank you that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Deliverer who came for the first time to pay the price for our sin, to die an atoning death, to absorb your wrath against evil, and then to rise victorious from the dead, declaring sacrifice accepted. We can be redeemed. Lord, thank you for that. Father, we pray as we close that we would worship you in spirit and truth. And those who don't know you will know you. They will turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. And those of us who know you be encouraged in the gospel, looking at the cross and seeing all that has been accomplished for us and looking back at the cross and see how loved and accepted we truly are. Come, Holy Spirit, help us to worship you.